welcome to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast that perpetuates the war on cars. I'm Jason from Not Just Bikes, and I have with me here Doug Gordon from the podcast, The War on Cars. This is a little confusing. I don't know if I'm hosting this podcast or being <laughs> interviewed. I feel like, you know, we're both counterparts to each other in certain ways. Yes, indeed. But in this case, we're just co-hosts here, right? It's all good. I love this. So, Doug, I saw you just a few weeks ago because... I was cycling in Amsterdam. I was going out to film a couple of locations and you just yelled at me from the side of the street, which was pretty amazing. I don't know how often that happens to you. Yeah. So I was in Amsterdam following a trip to Berlin. I had run the marathon there and then immediately got on the train the next day and came out. And I think this was the first afternoon that I was in Amsterdam, walking back to my hotel, saw you ride by on the Bach feeds. <laughs> and I think I yelled out, Jason, not yeah. just bikes, we're yeah. on cars, <laughs> which must have confused the hell out of you. But you know, you did stop. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm never quite sure. I do get people who recognize me in Amsterdam, of course, even though I don't show myself on camera that often. It's not like I hide my appearance either. So right. People do know what I look like, and I do get spotted on the street. So at first I thought, oh, it's a fan, you know, like, and I was right, just going right, to wave right. and move on with, and they were like, hey, <laughs> it's Doug, which is kind of amazing. And, and we should say that, like, I had met you before because you've been a guest on The War on Cars the last time that I was in yes. Amsterdam. We met in person and I interviewed you outside, so. Yeah, I'll put a link to that podcast down below in case anybody listening to this hasn't heard that episode when I was on The War on Cars podcast. But you've been doing The War on Cars for a while now, right? How long has it been? Yeah. We just celebrated our fifth anniversary, so we launched in the fall of 2018. Yeah. Nice. So we then met up for beers the next day in Amsterdam. That was good fun, but I haven't heard about the rest of your trip. How was it? It was great. You know, this was my seventh or eighth time in Amsterdam over many years, so it was a very different trip for me. I didn't need to do all the touristy things that kind of tend to knock off when you are in a new city. I just had a lot of time to wander around. I sat at cafes. I was doing work. You know, I'd go back to my hotel rather early just to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. chill out, get stuff done, read a book. And I really enjoyed the experience of, quote unquote, living in the city for six days. Right. But not having to do very much other than see friends bumping into you. Mm -hmm. Took a trip out to Delft and, and saw the Bruntlets, who I feel like a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, Chris and Alyssa. Yeah, I should have them on sometime, actually. Yeah, and really just had a great time. And the thing that really struck me this time was the quiet. Being in a car light city or in car-free areas of the city, just the liveliness of it all, the people, the activity, but the calm. No honking, no engines revving. I slept like a baby while I was there. Yeah, because you live in New York City, is that right? Yeah, if I were not in our studio right now, you would probably hear sirens and a car <laughs> blocked in a parking spot, trying so a driver trying to get out honking or something like that. Oh, There's a reason I'm in the studio and not in my apartment doing this at home. Right, because it's the middle of the afternoon for you and it's the evening for me. It's prime rush hour for sure. So the one thing we talked about when we went and met up for some beers is that you've been doing the war on cars for a while. And as part of that, you have some Google alerts set up, right, to find out if people are talking about you. So tell me about that. Yeah, I should say it's not solely to see if people are talking about us, because that was not what was happening when I set up the (laughs) news alert. Like, you know, it was so early in the podcast history that I was wondering if anyone ever would talk about us. So it was more just to see like this phrase, right? The war on cars, 
We named our podcast The War on Cars because, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, if you try to take a single parking spot in any North American city, in the UK, in lots of places, Australia is a great example, and you try to take that parking spot and you turn it into bike parking mm -hmm. or public seating, or God forbid you try to take 100 parking spaces and put in a protected bike lane, you are accused of waging a war on cars. So that was a kind of tongue-in-cheek naming convention of our podcast. So I set up this news alert, and it would go off, you know, once or twice here and there per month, and maybe it kind of would get up to once or twice a week. And I think when I saw you, I said it was going off like multiple times per day. Like I'd get <laughs> the digest at the end yeah. of the day, and there'd be three or four news articles containing the phrase war on cars or war on the motorist, which is right. our other news alert that we have set up. Most of that these days seems to be coming from like London tabloids and the UK media in general. But we get some American versions here in New York. I get a few every now and then. Right. But yeah, it's kind of ringing off the hook, basically. You must have had it in Toronto during the Rob Ford days because he was always saying it's a war on cars. That was a constant thing. Well, that was before we started. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was 2010. He's sort of the granddaddy of that phrase, the war on cars. Oh God, he's been doing it that long. I can't believe it's been going on that long. It just... <laughs> yeah, God. no. Well, it's actually been going on for a lot longer, which we can probably get into. But yeah, he was the granddaddy of that phrase. And when he was elected mayor of Toronto, he said, ladies and gentlemen, the war on the car is officially over. Yes. So he famously said that when he got elected mayor, he went and canceled the LRT projects. There was something called Transit City that would have had several light rail trains crisscrossing the city wasn't perfect program, but it was actually pretty good. And to be honest, if Toronto had done it, they would be in a significantly better place than they are right now. Like significantly. It was, oh my God, I can't even tell you how much better the city would be if they had actually built Transit City. But he went and canceled it. Even though he didn't have the ability to do it, he had to get council approval. He just didn't. And then he said the war on cars is over by canceling a transit project. So it's like, really? Just and, and there was never traffic in Toronto again. It was <laughs> exactly. Everything was fine. It solved yeah. all traffic. Since 2010, actually, traffic has dried up. The 401 is just yeah. speed down and it's like No, nothing. I think the traffic <laughs> outside here is backed up from Toronto. So Yeah. Yeah, so that phrase, that was part of our discussion when we were deciding to name the podcast. We had all these kind of wonky names for it, Streets Pod and some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And my co-host, Sarah Goodyear, when we were trying to figure it out, she was like, well, you know, it's kind of the podcast about the war on cars. And right. Aaron and I just looked at her, kind of snapped our fingers. We're like, yeah, that's it. Done. Do you ever get shit about naming it that? That, you know, there's not a war on cars. We shouldn't give you this. Yes. I just got an email today from someone who essentially said, hey, Doug, big fan of your work, and then continued to list all the ways in which he was not a fan of my yeah. work. <laughs> I um, love those. Yeah. You know, I normally loved your videos, but. <laughs> yeah. And the last thing he said was like, you know, and regarding the name, I know you mean it tongue in cheek, but it might be hurting more than it's helping because people hear it and they get very defensive, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my answer to that is I don't care. I mean, you know, like <laughs> the correct answer. Right. Like, I don't think we would have succeeded in the way that we have so far if we had some name of like. The bike show that probably exists, and I don't want to like shit on anybody. But like, <laughs> we apologize to the bike show. We have nothing against you. Right, right. No, but if it had been like making cities better, 
But understanding that some people need their cars in certain oh situations, God. blah, 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 blah. Don't even get me started, by the way. One of the things yeah. that drives me fucking nuts about urbanist content, and it's one of the reasons I started a channel in the first place with the sort of attitude that I have, because every urbanist video that was on YouTube, and there's still lots of these that are up there, too, and articles and stuff. They're always hedging all their arguments. We understand that some it's people the need to, to be drive sure part of like, every Jesus. one of those videos. Yes. I just every time I see that, I just want to slap them upside the head and be like, can you just take a position? Can you just talk about something without having to hedge every single one of your arguments? Like, just anyway, don't yeah. get me started on. that. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And so, look, my feeling about kind of defending the title of the podcast is exactly that of like, we have a very strong point of view. Mm -hmm. It is reflected in the title of the podcast. And the title of the podcast informs our point of view. It kind of works in both ways. And sometimes, look, the podcast name is tongue-in-cheek. But every mm -hmm. now and then, my co-host Aaron Napperstek will say, well, wait a minute, why shouldn't there be a war on cars? You know, 43,000 Americans are killed in traffic crashes. Right. Some 7,000 or 8,000 of those are people outside of cars. 1.3 million road deaths worldwide. Like, cars are waging a war on us. And maybe it is time for advocates and urbanists or whatever label you want to give us to be a bit more assertive. Well, yeah, that lack of assertion was one of the th reasons I created my, well, continued with my channel, I should say. I created it to explain why we moved to the Netherlands. I perpetuated it because I was like, I want a YouTube channel that takes a position on things, that has an opinion, that like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the world needs more people taking strong opinions. Like, you don't have to be an asshole about it, and you can understand the kind of complicated mess we're in in many ways. But look, the other thing I'll say, the kind of proof is in the pudding. Like, I don't think... If it was just like the Doug, Sarah, and Aaron show where we talk about cities, I don't know if we would have made a lot of headway, yep. but the war on cars gets people's attention. So yeah. it's working. Well, you know, it's actually very similar to the subreddit, Fuck Cars. Yeah. So there's a subreddit called Fuck Cars. A lot of it was started actually from my channel, from my understanding of talking to the people who started it. They were inspired by it. And a lot of people are like, ah, oh, you know, this is just such an inappropriate name. And I've said many times before, I'm like, if it was called, you know, r slash n car dependency nobody would give a shit like yeah. people see fuck cars and they're like what do you mean fuck cars i need it to buy groceries i have kids or whatever right and then suddenly then you know they get involved they see it and then they realize oh actually yeah now that i've read this fuck cars like that's ridiculous yeah and i'm sure there are people who see the title of our podcast and are absolutely turned off but i guarantee more people have exactly that reaction like maybe they get up on their haunches a little bit they get defensive but then it opens up a conversation and i think we've brought yeah. more people in look i mean the proof is in the content that we handle these things i think pretty sensitively and with nuance and understanding because the three of us have all lived in car-dependent places, and there's a reason we prefer right. living here. Yeah. So you've been following this war on cars from your Google alerts, and that's been interesting to see them kind of peek throughout the world. But you actually sent me this article that I'll link in the show notes for anybody interested. It's an older Guardian article. Well, actually, it's not that old. It's from September of this year. The War on Motorists, the Secret History of a Myth as Old as Cars Themselves. So this topic, right? This idea that there's a war on motorists, that there's a war on cars is basically as old as cars, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this article is by Peter Walker, who is a great journalist, 
political reporter, also a very big cyclist, wrote a really good book called How Cycling Can Save the World. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, his earliest examples in this article go back to 1902, 1905, where people are talking about, you know, a war on motorists, right. you know, this new phenomenon, this thing that people were saying was convenient and going to open up transportation to the masses. Any efforts to curb its use was seen as a war on common people who were driving. Right. Even though, and back then, it is always so interesting to read about the stories of when cars were introduced because people used to just walk all over the streets. Kids used to play there. Like there wasn't really the concept of like kids play in a park back then. It was just kids just play in front of their house and their house is the street. They just play there. Yeah. I can't remember who said it, but like playgrounds are sort of like a symbol of surrender to automobiles. Yeah. And they really were. They were yeah. when they were introduced. Like there were parks and things like that. But the idea of the playground that kids go to this space to play was absolutely because it wasn't safe to play in the street anymore because of cars. Yeah, I mean, that's the world that we've built. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Peter Norton and fighting traffic. Mm. And a lot of the examples he cites from especially the 1910s and the 1920s, but that huge, huge amount of pushback at these invaders. You know, cars were just seen as violent monsters, literally depicted in editorial cartoons as like the modern Moloch, people mm. sacrificing the bodies of children to the gaping maw of these beasts that were invading their streets. And again, I think this history is probably familiar to not just bikes or, you know, urbanist agenda audience, but the drivers themselves were seen in a lot of the same ways that we see cyclists today, especially in U.S. cities, as wealthy hipsters with too much time on their hand using toys for pleasure trips yeah. and who were invading the sacred space of streets, which were used for socializing, for commerce, and also for transportation, but not at these high speeds. Right. And that was the thing when cars were introduced. And I mean, this is a whole other subject. We don't have to get too off topic, but right, like, right. people were just literally being killed. They were just being mowed down in huge numbers. Children, adults, everybody was just being murdered. And the people who had these cars in the early days were just a bunch of rich dudes who like they didn't need them and they weren't particularly useful back then either. I mean, they were obviously like your horseless carriage, but they broke down a lot. They were a pain in the ass to use. And it was mostly just rich dudes who were just joyriding around. Right. I mean, we literally have parkways because people would use those to get out of the city to go right. on joyrides, leisurely rides to get to the beach or the country or places like that. Right, right. Yeah, well, the article reads about, like, for example, when they were handing out all of the traffic fines on that day of 1905, it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who authored Sherlock Holmes, for example. And it's all these famous rich dudes from, like, 1905 that were just riding around in this. But the thing was that these people had a lot of money and a lot of political power, right, as did the car companies that were selling these things. Yes, and, you know, that's where a lot of the pushback came from because there was no organization really at the time that was saying like, you know, let children still play on the street. Yeah, right. There were automobile associations like literally the AA in the UK and things like that, that were starting to understand that cars had a huge image problem, let's say, and were pushing back. And, you know, here in the States and elsewhere, that's where, you know, again, I think this is probably well-worn territory for a lot of your Listeners, but you know, the term jaywalking mm -hmm. was a creation of that, of like, yeah. you need to use the corners, cross on the signal. Why? Because if you don't, you're a rube, you're a jay. Yeah. You're not a sophisticated urbanite who belongs 
on our streets. So, yeah, and look, we're still dealing with this today, as we've seen with a lot of the public service campaigns and other pedestrian safety campaigns that lay the blame squarely at vulnerable road users, as they say. So where have your Google alerts been going off lately? Okay, so right now they are really going off because of what's happening in the UK, largely at the level of the prime minister's race. You know, there's an election likely going to be happening pretty soon, depending on when it's called. And Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, has really leaned into the culture war piece of the war on cars to gin up votes. Right. You know, it's a pretty close race, I think. Like, polling right now is showing that he would probably lose if an election were to happen pretty soon. And so he's done three things that sort of fit in this war on cars. One of them literally in war on cars territory. So one is that the UK was supposed to go to banning all fossil fuel cars by 2030. He pushed that back to 2035. Right. And when I was in Amsterdam watching like CNN International and the BBC, you would have thought that the car companies were full in on the war on cars because basically their reaction to this was, what the hell? We have been planning everything for a 2030 ban on the internal combustion engine in our products. And now you've messed everything up prime minister. And (laughs) so they were really taking him to task for that. So that was one. Number two, I'm not going in chronological order necessarily, but they're all pretty close. He scaled back or canceled an extension of the HS2, the high-speed rail. And basically, you know, to the point where I think what he's doing is going to cost more money to undo than it would have cost to just finish the project. He says that he's going to invest this money in like more regional, smaller little spurs of the rail lines. Anybody who's traveled in the UK, it's great from a North American perspective, but not as good from a continental European one. And so again, this was sort of seen as like, maybe he's going to take the money and invest it in stuff for motorists. And then sort of the big one was what he literally called his plan for motorists. So he offered up this plan where he is going to ban the implementation of 20-mile-an-hour speed limit zones in smaller towns and villages and cities in the UK. He's going to limit the enforcement of bus-only lanes. So let's say you have a town that recognizes that lots of people take the bus on the weekend. He might say, no, you can only do it during rush hours Monday through Friday. And then he's also going to limit the implementation of the low-traffic neighborhoods that have been popping up where they're using things like traffic filters and planters. Modal filters and stuff. Yeah. And so this has been his plan for motorists. And he even posted a video, an interview with The Sun, I believe, where he talked about how very much echoing Rob Ford that the war on motorists, it was time to put a stop to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing that Rob Ford did. And of course, Rob Ford did get elected and the things that he put in place ended up being disastrous for transportation in Toronto. Toronto transportation is worse than it has ever been for everybody, including the motorists. And I mean, this is the thing that's always so frustrating about this is why I don't even like getting into it because I get so angry. But like all of this stuff ends up being shitty for everyone. Obviously, it ends up being literally deadly when you can't have like 20 mile per hour, 30 kilometer per hour speed limit zones. It's literally deadly for people walking and cycling, but it also just makes the city shitty for everyone. And the traffic is shit and everyone ends up driving. I mean, bus lanes, come on, man. Like bus lanes work better for 
everybody, absolutely everybody. As soon as you make the bus faster than sitting in traffic, a bunch of people get on the bus. Not everybody, but enough so that it balances it out and things get better for everyone. And just, you know, banning bus lanes is just so brain dead. And it's its own form of induced demand, because basically, you know, you know, you're essentially saying that street that had, let's say, four lanes of traffic on it. Now we've put a bus lane on either side. So it's bus lanes plus just two lanes of car traffic. Well, now it's going to be four lanes again. And the traffic is just going to fill it up. And it's just going to be worse than it was before. So it is so short sighted. And the really interesting thing about Sunak's video is that he talks very much in there about Believe me, I've watched this way too many times. He talks about how it's time for the government to stop making short-sighted decisions and really think long-term. And I wanted to bang my head against my computer screen, thinking like short-term decisions. You're canceling HS2 and you're talking about being like Literally (laughs) hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds, just down the drain. And, you know, talk about short-term versus long-term, you know, climate change, all this kind of stuff. And it's clearly just an electoral ploy to gain favor with an ever-shrinking number of people. Of course. The other thing he said, too, which I thought was great, was that we are a nation of motorists. And I think someone, a journalist ran the numbers and basically said something like, only 18% of people in the UK drive on a daily basis. I mean, you know, their transportation is not perfect, but anybody who's been to London knows that the majority of people there, or Manchester, or other cities, are not getting around in private automobiles. Yeah, I mean, the UK is very split that way. London is super different than the rest of the country in terms of every single metric yeah, for sure. you can imagine. It's a little bit like New York City compared to the rest of the United States, for what it's worth. But still, yeah, I mean, like I worked and lived in Cambridge, for example, yeah. for quite a while. And there's an awful lot of people who get around there by walking, cycling and public transit in Cambridge. And I know Cambridge is a university town and everything, but it's certainly not the only one yeah. in the UK that does that. I lived in the UK for six years. It's frustrating. And the low traffic neighborhoods as well. Low traffic neighborhoods are a whole other subject unto themselves, but they are wildly popular by pretty much everybody except for a very small, extremely vocal minority. Yeah. And that's always how it is. We're dealing with this in New York in exactly the same way that, you know, we have a couple of street redesign projects, including a few very close to me, that were really designed to slow cars down, give space for people walking give more space for people biking. And the run-up to them, you would think they were the most unpopular idea ever. But then as soon as you get them in the ground and people see what's possible, everybody comes out because I think mostly people are indifferent to this issue, right? right? They're not nerds like you and me. They don't think deeply about this. And I think most people live in cities. They think, yeah, things change, right? My street is not always going to be the same. And then it changes and all they can think is, okay, it's different now. And the few people who are going to lose parking, those are the ones who flip out all the time. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same story. And you just need politicians who are willing to think in the long term and stick things out through those first, let's say, few weeks or months of quote unquote controversy. Yeah. It's one of the core design philosophies that's done here in the Netherlands is that they cut off through traffic to residential neighborhoods. That's just not a thing. You don't have through traffic in residential neighborhoods. The only people there our local traffic going to a place there or from a place there. Yeah. Nobody is ever driving through a residential neighborhood. And that's just the way it works. And 
people would not want to bring cars back. And one of the things that frustrates me the most about this is that when you look at like suburbs, they're often built in those, you know, curvy streets and everything like that. And they're done in order to keep the cars out, to keep the through traffic out. Like this is the way things are built in suburbs, even car dependent suburbs all over America and Canada, for example. And yet when people who live downtown want to do exactly the same thing, just keep through traffic out of their residential neighborhood, suddenly it's a war on cars. I'm like, it's like, come on. Yeah, we have this problem here in my neighborhood. I just went to a local community meeting where the nature of the plan was not that important, but basically the city DOT wanted to change traffic directions on one street to process more cars and free up this intersection. It's not that important. But what people were complaining about to a person in the meeting was traffic has gotten worse in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. When I drive back from wherever I'm driving back from, be it work or a weekend away or just a trip to the grocery store, I have to circle the block forever. And all these quote unquote other people are making traffic worse. And again, I wanted to slap my forehead and be like, wait, other people are making your driving worse. No, your driving is making it worse for other people and for <laughs> yourself. You know, we have seen the problem and yeah. it is us. And nobody really wants to take on the issue of car dependency and car supremacy or dominance in that way because it means the loss of sort of personal privilege. Yeah. It's a real problem that nobody seems willing to address, at least here. This is one of these things I'll eventually have to make a video about someday, but it's this real thing that a car for an individual can provide a benefit, but then it's a negative impact on the rest of society. And that's just the way it works. So you could say, well, I just want to drive because I'll be dry and it's easier and I can just sit in my leather couch and drive there instead of walking. But it impacts everybody else negatively, including, of course, that driver who's complaining about all the yeah. other people who are driving. It's just this constant thing. And that's the fundamental. When you boil it all down, that's the fundamental is that an individual driving gets these privileges to the detriment of literally everybody else. And I can't remember if it's Ivan Illich or Gorse, you know, the classic essays that are often shared energy and equity or the social ideology of the motor car. But I think one of them compares the car to something like a beach house, right? Mm -hmm. Like both of those things tend to actually lose their utility the more people have them, right? right? Like the quiet house on the beach is lovely until everybody around you wants to be building on the beach. And on the other hand, something like a vacuum cleaner doesn't lose its utility the more people have vacuum cleaners. It right. doesn't ruin my experience of cleaning my house. And that's how I see bicycles. Like if anything, the opposite is true. The more people who have bicycles in my city, the better off I am. But it doesn't affect my ability to get to work in terms of speed in any way. Like whether I ride to work with 20 people who I see on my commute or 2,000 people who I see mm -hmm. on my commute, it takes me 30 minutes to get to work. I'd rather be with the 2,000 people because it's safer. <laughs> yeah. But this is a fundamental thing people do not understand about cars. Yeah. I mean, that's really it. That's where it comes down to. It's the old Onion article, 98% of Americans approve of public transportation for others. <laughs> so that's basically what it is. Yeah. I should say the other thing that has been making our war on cars or war on motorists Google alert go off is at the mayor's level in London mm. because Sadiq Khan wants to expand the ultra low emission zone. Right. And that has also caused a lot of freaking out. And some of the misinformation and disinformation that you're seeing is that he's basically, you know, it's a war on motorists. They're going to force you to 
trade in your old car for a new one. And no, that's not what's going to happen. But this is, again, the tabloids are having a field day with it. One of the things that bothers me the most about all of this is that the side that's very pro-motorist is just full of lies. They cannot talk about this in any realistic way. Whenever you read these War on Cars stories, it's lies. It's just literal lies about what's being proposed. And obviously, like the full extent of that is the urbanists have this agenda, their 15 minute city bullshit. But, you know, that's the very extreme. But every step of the way, it lies about everything, because I think the fundamental issue here is that a lot of these programs like people actually want and they're good. And when they're implemented, people really like them. And I think that's the scariest part to these people is that they know, I'm sure they know that these policies are actually like really, really liked and people love them. And once they're there, like a low traffic neighborhood, it's hard to get rid of it because people are like, well, wait a second, this is awesome. Like this is way better. You're sort of describing the entire Republican mindset around social welfare of any sort in the United right. States. And while you were talking, I was thinking, oh, the best example of that here in the U.S. is Obamacare. We had massive freakouts when this was proposed early in Obama's term. And I think the fear was from the right, especially, but certainly there was this fear spread among other political circles that if you got it in, it would be impossible to undo. And so it was seen as really unpopular. And then, you know, not too long ago, the Republicans tried to get rid of Obamacare. And what happened? There were massive protests People storming, not storming the Capitol is the wrong term to use in this context. <laughs> that does um, happen, but not right, for this. Not for this. But people, you know, <laughs> lobbying their senators and like sitting in, in their offices and saying, you're not going to take away this thing that, again, the American healthcare system is still a disaster, but like yeah. has made life marginally better for me, especially, let's say, as a disabled person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's exactly the same thing is that intuitively these people know that if we make the world slightly better or admit that it is not good, that will lead us down the road to things we don't want. A dismantling of a status quo that is benefiting some people, but barely working for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the trick. So with this whole war on cars thing, it does pop up all over the place. We talked about how it was in Toronto and London and the UK. And like, does this rhetoric still work? Because one of the things that I was actually really thankful to see is that there was this whole war on cars thing that was tried again in the latest Toronto election. And actually, I have, I have a podcast on that. If you're listening and want to listen to that, it's the one with Reese about the Toronto election with RM Transit. There were two candidates who were really big on the war on cars thing. They did exactly the same, literally carbon copy of Rob Ford talking about how cyclists are trying to take over with their agenda and all this stuff. And they lost. They lost horribly. And actually, Olivia Chow who is a fantastic politician, as far as politicians go, became mayor of Toronto. And so I was really thankful to see that, that in that case, it just didn't work. So what are you seeing in this around the world? Like, is this rhetoric still working? I think it works as a delay tactic, but I don't think ultimately, again, talking short term and long term, I don't think it works in the long term. So, for example, here in New York, our mayor, Eric Adams, He's not good. Yeah, I've heard a few things. <laughs> it's not great. And he hasn't been using the war on cars rhetoric, but he has been canceling, even mid-implementation, some bike lane and pedestrian projects. And I think what happens is you take this issue that nobody outside of the advocates and urbanists would really be paying attention to. Right. And it turns into this thing that now 
local news is covering, right? So the reason some of these things are getting canceled is not because of rich data analysis and traffic studies and safety analysis or anything like that. They're getting canceled because an advisor in his office doesn't like bike and ped stuff, prides herself on never having taken the subway in 40 years, even though she's lived in New York all that time, and just hates all this stuff and sort of sees after 12 years of Bloomberg and eight years of de Blasio, like the bike and pedestrian era is over. And nobody outside of the inside baseball folks would be paying attention to that level of just like incompetence and corruption. But suddenly bike lane canceled because one person in the mayor's office doesn't like it becomes a story that normies know you sort of public radio listening audience, not the folks reading Streets Blog or watching your videos or listening Mm -hmm. to our podcast, can wrap their heads around. And they're like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And so it's kept a lot of these stories in the news for longer than I think the mayor probably anticipated. And I do think that the war on cars stuff backfires because it just seems ridiculous. I mean, I remember my mother visiting, she lives in suburban Boston, And there was a bike lane that had been this huge fight up on Prospect Park West near where I live. Oh, yeah. I remember reading about the Prospect Park. This was sort of my foray into advocacy. And she looked at it and she's like, I don't understand what they were all upset about. The cars used to be parked here. She pointed to the curb. And now they're parked here. And she pointed to sort of the outside of the bike lane where they now were. And my mother is not an urbanist, you know, she's a solid baby boomer who drives. And so again, I just think it brings this issue to the attention of people who are like, wait a minute. And then of course, this war on motorists falls apart every two to three days here in New York when someone is killed by a car. Right. And so it brings this into the news in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, maybe to circle back to what we were saying earlier, does it hurt or help to say the war on cars? I'm thinking in a weird way, it helps. Look, I'd rather have politicians who just get it and are doing this stuff like Olivia Chow, who hopefully will be great. And, you know, Anne Hidalgo, who we're always talking about. Mm. But, you know, it's not going to work for them in the long run. It's the last gasp of a culture war. That's all it is. Yeah, I think that's probably an accurate description. I mean, we still get those people here in the Netherlands, too. I get them in the comments of my videos sometimes you'll get these people saying like, oh, this is just that one part of Amsterdam and everywhere else, everybody drives all the time, which is completely false. But we do still get that pushback here when we do certain things, but obviously not nearly as much. You have to have a pretty serious project, like when they literally closed the busiest road in Amsterdam for six weeks to see what would happen. That was when people went off. That was a bit too far. But in Amsterdam these days, it's very normal that a street redesign gets, you know, streets 30 years old, it's going to get repaved. Half the parking spots are gone. The bike lanes are now like improved. Here on December 8th, the entire city basically is going 30 kilometers an hour, except for some very few exceptions. And actually, it's really interesting. I was riding around today and I noticed there's so many signs now that say, this street will become 30 kilometers an hour. And I'm like, wow, there's so many of them. And then I realized that it's just like a foil thing on top that they're clearly going to peel off and it's got a 30 sign underneath oh, that's it, great. which is kind of interesting because they've been popping up all over the place. Nobody's complaining about that because I think the thing is, after you've done this for a while, like I said, these programs are wildly popular. But as you've stated, most people don't think about this. They don't really care about it. But I think it's been done enough here in Amsterdam 
that people are more aware of it. And they see so many of these nice places that then they'll go to one other place in their neighborhood and it's 50 kilometers an hour and four lanes. And they're like, actually, this place here is kind of crap. So when the city comes along and says, well, we're going to redesign this, everyone's like, all right, that's great. You know, yeah. like it feels like this natural progression that pretty much everybody's in favor of. And of course, there are still the car brain people in the Netherlands. They still exist, too. But I think in general, these people are a minority actually in every country, because I think, as you said, most people don't care. They really don't. Yes. And I also think, and it's a lesson no U.S. politician ever seems to learn. So City Bike is the best example of exactly what you're talking about. Right. Huge uproar when it was proposed. Even bigger uproar when the first stations were laid down on the street. Yeah, and they started removing parking spaces and stuff like right. that. Right. Even the, Oh, gosh. Even the ones they put on the sidewalk, people were freaking out. Like, how are old people going to walk down the sidewalk, et cetera? Right. All the stuff you hear. Then it launches, and it's an immediate success. I mean, there were some minor technical issues, but the demand was clearly there. Right. And we went very quickly from, why are you putting City Bike on my block, to why aren't you putting City Bike on my block? And right. you also see that, for example, you know, our biggest parks here, Central Park in Manhattan, Prospect Park in Manhattan, had cars going through them at rush hour five years ago yeah. when the last car went through both of those parks. And I was recently talking to someone who's lived here for only three years, and I told him this fact. He did not believe me. Yeah. And so I think, you know, people, A, have very short-term memories. B, they get used to stuff. And C, like we're saying, like, they just sort of assume that the city can change if it wants to, and they're generally okay with it. Right. But these politicians don't ever take that. If they are the ones with the like short-term headline news cycle-based thinking that never really thinks like, oh yeah, everybody freaked out about that bike lane the last time, two right. blocks from here. They're not going to freak out about this one, or they will, and we'll get over it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think also part of this is politicians go after the people who vote and the extremists are always the ones who are guaranteed to vote every time. Yes. And I really have to stress to people, you got to vote in your municipal elections. I personally think you got to vote in every election. I know my grandfather beat this into me. I was just talking to my kids about this today because we're having the federal elections coming up next month. Here, we can't vote. We're not citizens yet. But I remember my grandfather saying, I didn't go through World War II for you to not vote. <laughs> so right. like, he was literally, he was saying that, like, you go vote, all right? I was on oh. the front lines in the Netherlands fighting the Nazis. You're going to go vote. <laughs> I vote for, like, dog catcher. I will vote for everything. And the thing is, it's exactly that. Like, the people who have the most influence on your life are not your senators. I mean, look, yeah. I do not want to take away in the U.S. like all that, you know, <laughs> like the folks who are nominating Supreme Court justices. I don't want to take any of that away. But in your day-to-day -day life, it's yeah. the people who make the decisions about how your streets are used, right? Or how the trash is picked up. Those are the people who have the most influence on your day-to-day -day existence. And you've got to get out there and vote. Right. We have a very low turnout. I mean, it's a part of how Eric Adams became mayor. So few people voted. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, people are always focused on the these presidential and prime minister elections and all this kind of stuff. And then municipal elections have such low turnout. And I was going to say, look, look, even if you don't vote that often, I think you should. But even if you don't, the thing you really should vote for is in your municipal elections, because it is shocking how few votes are needed to flip those municipal elections, even in huge cities, even in like Toronto, a very small like you're talking like in some of these districts, it's literally 100 to 200 
votes that flip it out of thousands. And you just got to go out and vote. Like you really, really, really have to do it because one of the issues and from a politician's point of view, let's say even like you are the most pure politician that exists. At the end of the day, you got to get reelected or you got to get elected and you're going to go after the people who vote. And so whatever they care about, you have to talk about because they're going to vote and the other people won't. There's no point in talking about issues that are favored by people who don't vote. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Which is why you have to vote. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think there's another dynamic going on here as well. And it relates to like who the politicians are listening to, which is that I often say it's very hard to organize the tenants of an affordable housing development that hasn't mm. been built yet. Of right. Course. But it's very easy, of course, to organize the owners of the single family homes who live next to the vacant lot where the affordable housing will be built. And we have the same problem, obviously, with bike lanes. Nobody's biking on that street. Everybody's parking on that street. How do you organize the cyclists who don't yet exist, yeah. who might use that street or might have never gotten on a bike before, but now that you've built a slightly larger network, will come out? And so the people who have something to lose, parking, tend to call their city council members. Right. I joke with my fellow bike advocates here. I was like, you know what? If you have a great bike commute, call your city council person and be like, hey, just want to let you know, made it home safe. Thank you for that bike lane. It was great. Like my wife one time, God bless her, she went into the lost luggage office at LaGuardia Airport and literally went in there and said, just want to let you know, you probably never hear people say this to you, but my luggage came off the plane and I got it and I'm on my way home. So I just want to say thank you. And I feel like there's a lesson there, which is like, tell people you like things and you might get more of them because the people who don't like things are absolutely telling their elected officials. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think that's probably a good place to end off the conversation, to be honest, because we could literally talk all night on this. I mean, we've got together. Well, hopefully I'll bump into you the next time I'm in Amsterdam and then we'll go for beers. Yeah, yeah. indeed. I'll make sure I wave and say hi and we'll go for a beer again. That was good fun. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I just want to make sure that if anybody listening has not listened to the War on Cars podcast, you should listen to the War on Cars podcast, actually. It's really, really good. And also, it comes out way more often. It comes out very regularly, unlike this podcast. Yeah, we do two episodes a month, plus a bonus for our Patreon folks. So, yeah. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming out, Doug. I really appreciate it. And I'll have you on again sometime because I know we could talk about this stuff forever. Likewise, you're welcome on the show anytime. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to The Urbanist Agenda. As usual, all new episodes will be available early on Nebula. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, now might be a good time. You can sign up at nebula.tv agenda. And with a subscription to Nebula, you not only support this podcast, you also get access to content by over 150 creators. That's everything from videos to podcasts to classes and more. Nebula is also constantly adding new Nebula originals, which are high-budget productions on a wide range of interesting topics. If you use our link, which again is nebula.tv agenda, you'll get a discount on a yearly subscription, which brings it down to only 30 bucks a year. I'm a big fan of Nebula, which is why all of my Not Just Bikes videos are available there, as well as some that are only available on Nebula, and of course, all episodes of The Urbanist Agenda. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, go check it out today. And thanks again for listening.